Very early in life, we get introduced to the concept of being selected for various tasks or work. And if you haven't, by the time you're in grade school, it will come soon after. Whether it's two self-appointed captains selecting teams on the playground, or maybe a teacher selecting someone for a helper for a classroom task. Of course, as we get older, those concepts, we all have concepts as to what kind of people should be picked for some kinds of, for certain kinds of work. And some of those concepts are more justified than others. And it's this awareness that brings us to tell people things like dress the part or dress for the job you want to have, which isn't necessarily a bad thing because some of these concerns are valid. You want someone to be qualified for what they're doing. And you want a good candidate to project that qualification. But at the same time, life experience also teaches us very quickly that selection for a task or an assignment or work sadly can be carried out in ways that are less than ideal, if not flat out wrong. We see things like nepotism or classism or sexism or ageism or racism or all kinds of isms become factors and reasons why people are or are not selected for certain work. Fortunately, none of these things are factors in being part of the most important kind of work. Today is the fourth Sunday of Advent, season where we remember Israel's waiting for the Messiah and recognition for our waiting for his return when Jesus comes again. And so far we've looked at the Advent reality being rooted in God's promise of restoration. We've talked about how our waiting is active as we prepare our hearts for the Lord's work and his return. And this week we take a closer look at what participating in God's work involves. And we find that God doesn't select people for his work like the world does. And when we look at Mary, she shows us important things about God's work. And about the kinds of people that God selects to be part of it. Now, just as John the Baptist's ministry leads up to Jesus' ministry, as we saw before, so his announcement of his birth in Luke's gospel precedes Jesus' announcement. So, if you'd like, I invite you to pull out a Bible from your pew or pull it up on your phone. We're going to be jumping around the chapter a little bit. And it's a little longer of a passage this morning. Sometimes that helps to reference, but before our passage, before Mary encounters the angel Gabriel, we're told that Gabriel announces the birth of John the Baptist to his father, Zechariah, saying that his wife, Elizabeth, will conceive. Even though to this point, they have been unable to bear children. And they're beyond childbearing years at this point. Both Zechariah and Elizabeth were righteous, and Zechariah was a priest. And Gabriel tells him that his son will make ready a people prepared for the Lord. Now, despite the fact that this is one of several births to come to a couple who has lived with infertility in Scripture, and despite the fact that Zechariah is a priest, despite the fact that he's talking to an angel, he still asks the question, How can I be sure of this? And Gabriel gives him a sign that he will be unable to speak until John is born because he didn't believe him. 
Now, after Elizabeth is six months pregnant, Mary gets visited by the same angel. And Gabriel tells of yet another miraculous birth. There are, however, some significant differences. First, the setting is notably unnotable. While Gabriel meets Zechariah the priest in the temple in Jerusalem, he meets Mary, a young woman pledged to be married in Nazareth, a very small and obscure village. Mary is a woman of no social significance, and yet she's told that she's highly favored, that she will give birth to the Son of God, and that he will be given the throne of David, whose kingdom will last forever. She's giving birth to the Messiah. Now, way back in the summer, we looked at God's promise to David in greater detail. We revisited it a couple weeks ago in Jeremiah's prophecy, and David the king by which all other kings were measured in Israel's history, was promised an eternal dynasty. And that promise takes on a new light after the kingdoms of both Israel and Judah are conquered and exiled. And so at the time of this announcement, they remain an occupied people, occupied by an oppressive Roman Empire. And so everyone in Israel is waiting for the Messiah to restore the kingdom. And Mary is to give birth to him miraculously, as a virgin, by the power of the Holy Spirit. An even greater miracle than her relative Elizabeth experiences, who she goes to visit after submitting to Gabriel's message. And it's hard to do justice to the richness of this wonderful story, but there are a few things we can look at to inform how we can view God's work as we wait, and how we can be more a part of it. First of all, a key message of the passage is that God's work will not fail. It's easy enough to recognize it as we read. It's a little harder to digest emotionally because it doesn't always seem like God is at work. It's hard to appreciate how profound Gabriel's word is to Mary. It's just coming to a woman among a people that have been bullied by the surrounding empires and nations for centuries. During a time when it had been about 400 years since the last time they heard from a prophet. And all around them are reminders of the power of the Roman Empire that was oppressing them. Perhaps it's These factors are perhaps, it's more personal, but it's interesting to note that in this context, Zechariah the priest does not immediately believe the angel's message to him, but Mary the peasant does. Whereas Zechariah asks, how can I be sure of this? Mary's question doesn't concern whether it will or won't happen. It presumes that it will happen. She simply wants to know how because she's a virgin. Gabriel tells her, of course, the power of the Holy Spirit will overshadow her, saying, verse 37, for no word from God will ever fail. The message that Gabriel is delivering to Mary is simply the fulfillment of long-awaited promises that God had already made. It's going to happen. There is hope. 
this is a hope apparently Mary was in touch with in the midst of Israel's oppression. And a hope we can carry now for God to bring the reality of his rule in its fullness when Jesus returns. God's kingdom truth, the reality of Jesus' kingdom, is true. And it's active. Regardless of what's going on in your life. Regardless of what's going on in the world. And it doesn't always feel like that. It doesn't always feel like God is at work. But it's true. And so it's all the more important that we cling to that truth, as Mary did, as Mary received it, to press in to the promises of God, to press into the hope promised in the Messiah that's promised in this passage and his return that his word continues to promise. Another message we receive happens when Mary goes to visit Elizabeth. And it'd be interesting to consider whether it was revealed to Elizabeth about Mary's miraculous pregnancy or if she's simply responding to Mary telling her. It's a little unclear. If it's the former, it's all the more the work of the Holy Spirit. But it's still significant if it's the latter. Because it's still significant that she believes her. Perhaps it's a little more likely since Elizabeth has experienced a miracle herself, but it's noteworthy that a virgin pledged to be married would be saying she's pregnant by miraculous means. Even Joseph, the man she's pledged to marry, has to be told by an angel where the baby came from. Whatever the case, whatever Elizabeth's responding to, she recognizes what God is doing because of the work of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is showing and accomplishing God's work, both in this passage and today. In Luke's Christmas narrative, or narratives, depending on whether you look at the passages individually or collectively, the Holy Spirit is all over the place. Elizabeth's child, John, is said to be filled with the Spirit in the womb. The Spirit's instrumental in Elizabeth's exclamation and recognition of God's work in Mary as she said, Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the child that you will bear. And if you go further, after John is born and Zechariah can talk again, he prophesies, filled with the Holy Spirit, about his son's ministry. And it's the Holy Spirit's power that is explicitly said to be the reason for the virgin birth. And then if you fast forward into the work of Jesus, the child born to Mary, he accomplishes a new reality where life with the Spirit is normative for all who follow him. Luke goes into even greater detail of that reality in his second volume of Acts. There's a reason that we as a church affirm that we consciously depend on the Holy Spirit. He accomplishes and guides us in all that God does in us, through us, and around us. And we have the privilege of reading this story from a place where if we follow Jesus, the Spirit is our reality. Do we live in a way consistent with that reality? Do we live like we depend on him? 
Do we make space for him to move? Space for him to speak? Space for him to guide us? If you want to see what God is doing, if you want to be a part of what God is up to, it helps to be open to the work of his Holy Spirit. Finally, Mary shows us that God favors the humble and the willing for his work. This is a continual theme throughout Scripture. Time and again, God uses unlikely characters, overlooked characters, characters on the margins, the people who we wouldn't pick are the ones he often picks to be a part of his plans. Whereas Zechariah, the priest, receives an announcement about his son's birth from Gabriel, and his response is, how can I be sure? Mary not only expresses confidence that this word from Gabriel will come to be, she says, how will this be? She expresses her willingness to be a part of it. To be a part of God's plan. And so Mary is an exemplary model of faith for us, especially when she says, I am the Lord's servant. May your word to me be fulfilled. Don't underestimate the weight of those words. Mary is volunteering to be an unwed, young, pregnant woman pledged to a man to be married in first century Galilee. There are a bunch of questions that could have run through her head and probably did. Would people believe her? That's an important one, considering that being engaged, if they don't believe her, it would have con- they would have considered it a- her an adulterer. And there's really no indication that, aside from people with divine insight, that anyone does. Even Joseph has to be told where the- that the baby is from God, a righteous man. Would she be scorned with the stigma of it? Again, who's to say that she wasn't? We don't know, but that's a good bet. She could have asked any of these things. Any one of these concerns is enough to give anyone second thoughts. And instead, from her mouth we hear, I am the Lord's servant. When you are the Lord's servant, You do things the Lord's way. You do what the Lord says. You seek to have your life wrapped up in his business and his work. Regardless of what it costs you. Regardless of what's in it for you. Mary knows this. And that's why she not only agrees with Gabriel's word. After Elizabeth blesses her, she rejoices. She gives us that beautiful song. Let's jump around it a little bit. She says, my soul glorifies the Lord. My spirit rejoices in God, my Savior, for he has been mindful of the humble state of his servant. From now on, all generations will call me blessed, for the mighty one has done great things for me. Holy is his name. Mary rejoices in being part of God's work, and in her whole song, there's not a word about what it might cost her. Instead, she recognizes that the work is bigger than her. 
If you go farther down, we'll, we'll skip toward the bottom. If you go to verse 54, she says, He has helped his servant Israel, remembering to be merciful to Abraham and his descendants forever, just as he promised our ancestors. She recognizes that she is given a privileged part in the big picture of God's salvation history. She knows it's not about her. God's work is not about us. It's about him. It's about his glory. And the one born to Mary is still working. He is still bringing his kingdom as promised to this world. He is still inviting us to be part of it alongside him. And if we want to be part of it, it would help us to be mindful of his spirit, to listen to him and to obey him. And Mary's words and actions, they teach us the importance of a humble trust in God that she displays so well to be a part of his work. The middle of her song instructs us further when she says, he has performed mighty deeds with his arm. He has scattered those who are proud in their inmost thoughts. He has brought down rulers from their thrones, but he has lifted up the humble. He has filled the hungry with good things, but he has sent the rich away empty. In God's kingdom, the last are first, and the first are last, just as our Savior teaches. There is a role reversal where true power is not wielded from the thrones or the offices or the boardrooms of this world. Instead, being a part of the most important work, the work that will not fail, the work that has eternal purposes, to be a part of that, it comes through having a humble heart that God will lift up. And so while our world may choose the rich, the powerful, the strong to be on their team, while the world says you have to make your mark and make a name for yourself, while the world urges us to get more, even if it's at the expense of others, an unnotable young woman from an unnotable town shows us another way. Mary shows us God's way and exemplifies who God incorporates into his big plans. She shows, she shows us the humble heart that the Holy Spirit so often works through, so often speaks through, when she says, I am the Lord's servant. May we respond to God's work in the same way. Let's continue worshiping.